It will be a true crime takeover in San Jose, California on Thursday, February 22nd. Hi, this is Esther, host of Once Upon a Crime. I will be co-hosting a podcast listener meetup with two legends in true crime podcasting, Justin and Aaron from the Generation Y. Come on out to the V-Bar at Hotel Valencia on Santana Row to have a drink, take some selfies, and talk true crime with us and other true crime podcast fans. No tickets are required. Just show up and bring your best partners in true crime to enjoy a fun night out with us beginning at 6 p.m. Go to our events page at truecrimepodcast.com for more information, and we'll see you there. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This week we're concluding a three-part series about the kidnapping of Colleen Stan. If you've not yet listened to parts one and two, you'll want to start with episodes 308 and 309. By August 1984, 27-year-old Colleen Stan had been held captive by 30-year-old Cameron Hooker and his 26-year-old wife Janice for nearly seven years after being abducted while hitchhiking. Colleen was imprisoned in a specially constructed wooden box and subjected to daily sexual assault, torture, starvation, extreme isolation, and sensory deprivation. After years of being under Cameron Hooker's complete control, she'd earned brief periods of freedom. Her captor had used extreme levels of coercive control and brainwashing to render Colleen powerless, even while not in his presence. Despite this trauma, Colleen and Hooker's wife Janice, who was also subjected to her husband's violent sexual fantasies and abuse, formed a close bond. Hooker had convinced Colleen that if she ever attempted to run away, a slave trade network called The Company would hunt her down, torture and kill her, and murder her family members as well. In August of 1984, Janice Hooker finally broke down and revealed to Colleen that there was no all-powerful sex slave network watching her. It was all a lie that her husband had made up to control Colleen. Colleen took immediate steps to flee her captor. With the assistance of their pastor, the women planned their escape. This is where we left off in the story in the last episode. In this third and final episode, I'll conclude the series, The Girl in the Box, The Kidnapping of Colleen Stan. On August 10, 1984, Colleen called her father and arranged to catch the bus home to Riverside, California. Before leaving town, she'd placed a phone call to her captor, Cameron Hooker. She informed him that she was leaving and knew he'd lied to her for years. She told Hooker that he no longer had any control over her. The next day, Colleen arrived back in Riverside and was greeted by her ecstatic family. Over the next several days, her story tumbled out as she shared with her family the terrible ordeal she was forced to endure during her seven-year absence. But Colleen declined to file a police report. She'd given Janice her word that she wouldn't go to the police. Janice begged her not to, saying that her girls would be left without parents as both she and Cameron would surely be arrested and sent to prison. Colleen and Janice had spent much of their time over the last few months reading the Bible and praying. Now they decided that Cameron Hooker should have the opportunity to repent his sins and be forgiven. They both expressed hope that he would change his ways. Colleen moved in with her father, Jack, and tried to return to a normal life in Riverside. She found a job working in the housekeeping department at a local hospital. She'd spent years in forced servitude while held prisoner. Colleen spent much of that time cleaning for the Hookers. Her supervisors at her hospital job found her to be very hardworking, and she was well-liked. By outward appearances, Colleen appeared to be making an effortless transition back to her former life after her horrible seven-year ordeal. She exhibited no great distress, 
nor did she suffer from an emotional breakdown. She remained very calm and matter-of-fact as she went about her life, free from Hooker's abuse and control. Janice Hooker had fled to her parents' home with her daughters. At first, she was terrified to speak to her husband, given how violent and vindictive she knew he could be. She also feared he would find a way to coerce her into returning to him. But to Janice's surprise, he did nothing. This reaction was the last thing she expected. Karen Hooker appeared to sink into a depression after Colleen and his wife left. He had broken down into sobs when he received Colleen's phone call, informing him she had escaped. It was only after several days alone that Hooker called his wife and begged her to come home. He promised to attend therapy and give up bondage if it meant having her back. After a week, Janice consented to come home. The couple began attending church together and entered into couples therapy with Pastor Dabney. Janice told the clergyman that her husband was a sadist. But it wasn't long before Cameron stopped attending sessions despite his announcement that he was now a born-again Christian. He decided that God had forgiven him and he no longer needed any help. But even a month after Colleen's escape, Hooker was still on edge about the prospect of Colleen reporting him to the police. Seeing her husband become more agitated, which she knew might make him capable of anything, Janice made a suggestion. To ease his mind, she suggested they destroy everything that could be used as evidence against them. Reluctantly, Hooker agreed to dispose of his bondage equipment, pornographic material, and photos of Colleen and Janice in bondage that he had taken and developed himself. They destroyed everything in a burn barrel on the property. But not everything was incinerated. Janice secretly hid some items from her husband. His quick shift in mood from when he'd begged her to come home to quickly returning to his controlling and narcissistic behavior had sent Janice into a panic. It had barely been six weeks since Colleen's escape, and her husband was already expressing the desire to kidnap another woman. He'd always talked about wanting more than one sex slave, and he now began to obsess over finding another young woman to take Colleen's place. Janice felt like she wouldn't survive another ordeal like the one they just ended, and she did not want to be complicit in another woman's kidnapping. Her anxiety grew to the point that she was unable to eat or sleep, so Janice returned to her parents' home. Almost immediately, her anxiety attacks began to dissipate. Over 500 miles away, Colleen was getting on with her life, but she still felt a strong tie to Janice. Even after returning home, she called Janice almost daily. They exchanged letters, and in one, dated September 19th, Colleen wrote, I do not want to play God, and I forgive you and Cameron for all things. It's done. However, deep down she was also finding it challenging to disconnect from Hooker completely. He'd controlled everything she did, and she'd been dependent on him for her basic survival. He had taken possession of her body and mind and convinced her her only chance of survival was to submit to his will. The trauma bond Colleen had developed with her captor made it incredibly difficult for her to sever contact with him completely. She spoke with him a few times over the phone. Once, while Janice was away, Hooker called Colleen just to ask her how to make a tuna sandwich. Colleen told Hooker she forgave him and would pray for him to turn away from his life of sin. Cameron and Janice were anxious to ensure Colleen would keep her promise not to go to the police. It was a challenging situation for Colleen's family. They desperately wanted her to press charges, but she refused. Angry about what Colleen had suffered, her cousins began making threatening calls to the hookers. To calm the situation, Colleen stopped communicating with the couple. She may have also done so soon after Janice left Cameron for good. On November 1, 1984, Janice visited the mobile home to find out if Cameron had destroyed the rest of his bondage equipment. She was distraught to learn that he had not. She was now sure he had not repented or changed at all. A week later, a friend in whom Janice had confided suggested that Cameron might become a risk to their daughters. Disturbed by this possibility, Janice took decisive action. She contacted Pastor Dabney and confessed everything. Shocked, the pastor urged Janice to call the police, 
but she was so terrified she begged Pastor Dabney to make the call for her. When Janice first spoke to Lieutenant Jerry D. Brown of the Red Bluff Police Department, she gave him details of the kidnapping of Colleen Stan. But she had even more to confess. She detailed another kidnapping committed by her husband in January of 1976. Cameron Hooker had murdered this young woman, Janice admitted through tears. Detective Al Shamblin of the Red Bluff Police Department was assigned to investigate this alleged crime. On November 9th, Janice was granted immunity by the district attorney in return for agreeing to both provide a complete account of what had happened to Colleen Stan and to testify against her estranged husband. She had given Detective Shamblin full details about the 1976 murder of a 19-year-old woman named Mary Elizabeth Marlis Spanicky. Marlis disappeared on January 31, 1976, from Chico, California, about a 40-minute drive from Red Bluff. Janice stated, and later testified at trial, that on the last day Marlis was seen alive, the couple picked her up as she hitchhiked. They drove her to her destination, but as she was getting out of the vehicle, Cameron Hooker grabbed her and forced her back into the car before affixing the headbox to the terrified girl. The couple drove the girl back to their home, where she was hung from her wrists in the basement, undressed and tortured. Wanting to stop the young girl's screams from alerting anyone, Hooker took brutal measures. Using a knife, he cut the young woman's vocal cords. Now unable to speak at all in an unbelievable pain, Marla's gestured to him that she wanted to write a note. He allowed this, and she scribbled the name and number of her boyfriend, telling Hooker that he could call him and ask for money to buy her release. He refused. Instead, he shot Marla's several times in the stomach with a pellet gun, an act which Janice described as a, quote, torture thing. Unlike Colleen, Marla's ordeal was short-lived. Janice told the detective that Hooker strangled the girl to death later that night. She said she believed Cameron killed Marlis because he, quote, lost control of the situation. In the early hours of February 1st, the couple wrapped the body in a blanket and drove into the mountains. They buried the body in a shallow grave near Lassen Volcanic National Park. Later, investigators conducted an extensive search of the area, but Marlis Banneke's remains were never found. At the time of her disappearance, her boyfriend was investigator's main suspect. He'd reported that they had argued just before she'd stalked off to return home alone. He lived under suspicion for eight years before Janice came forward to reveal what had happened to Marla's. On November 12th, Detective Shamblin flew to Riverside to interview Colleen in the presence of her parents. They listened as Colleen recalled the details of her kidnapping, the forced captivity, bondage, torture, the slave contract, and the terror she'd lived under daily for seven years. Unlike Janice, who had broken into sobs, hyperventilating during her interview, Colleen was completely calm and unemotional. When asked why she didn't go to the police once free, she explained that Janice asked her not to. Colleen was candid about her motivation for speaking with law enforcement, saying, quote, I'm not doing this for revenge, but only because I don't want it to happen to anyone else. On November 18, 1984, Hooker was arrested at his home and taken to the Tehama County Jail. Despite the appalling crimes he was accused of, the 31-year-old had no prior criminal record of any kind. Unfortunately for Marlis Banneke's family, there was insufficient evidence for authorities to prosecute Hooker for her murder. It was only a matter of time before the press got a hold of the story. It quickly became a worldwide media sensation, with headlines that read, Police arrest suspect in kidnap sex crimes and sex victim held for seven years. Lurid details about the box under the hooker's waterbed were leaked to the press, and the small rural town of Red Bluff became overrun with reporters and news cameras. Colleen Stan's kidnapping became known as the girl in the box case or the sex slave case. The reports confused local residents who had seen Colleen coming and going from the house freely over the years. They were baffled as to how it could be a case of kidnapping when she had taken the hooker's daughters out on walks, jogged around their neighborhood, 
gone shopping, worked outside in the yard, and even held a job. Even the hooker's former landlords, the Lettys, commented on the amount of freedom Colleen appeared to have. Mrs. Letty stated that she and Colleen had spent time alone having tea in her home. The young woman said nothing about being held against her will, she said. Regarding Cameron Hooker, Mrs. Letty told reporters, quote, Quiet as he was and everything, it's hard to believe he'd do those things, end quote. Hooker's parents, Harold and Lorena, were also interviewed and expressed their shock at allegations made against their son. They'd met Colleen, whom they knew as Kay, the babysitter, and couldn't believe she'd been held against her will. They said they were devastated for the young lady and her family if it were true. Harold Hooker described his son as, quote, the greatest son in the world, adding, he was a good, easy kid to raise, no trouble at all. He never, ever let his temper get away from him. After Hooker's preliminary hearing in Tehama County, Judge Dennis E. Murray ruled that the accused man would go to trial on one charge of kidnapping with the use of a deadly weapon, three counts of false imprisonment, seven counts of forcible rape, two counts of abduction for illicit relations, and single counts of forced sodomy, forced oral copulation, and penetration with a foreign object. Hooker pleaded not guilty and was held on $500,000 bail. Janice, who was central to the prosecution's case, had experienced a change of heart about testifying against her husband. She told prosecutors that both she and Colleen were brainwashed by Cameron, comparing him to infamous cult leader Jim Jones. Like Jones, Cameron used the Bible to convince the women what he was doing was justified and for their benefit, she explained. She began to make excuses for her husband, whom she still believed and loved. She was also emotionally dependent on him. Janice turned on Colleen, saying she knew for a fact that Colleen hadn't been raped and claimed she could, quote, destroy Colleen's story. Janice asked to speak with her husband's defense attorney, Roland Papendick, but since she was a witness for the prosecution, Papendick suggested that Janice share this information with her own attorney, Ron McIver. Things weren't going to be easy for Hooker's attorney in building a defense for his client. During Papendick's first meeting with the defendant, he asked Hooker how he met Colleen. Hooker replied, I kidnapped her. The case wasn't going to be a slam dunk for the prosecution either, however. It was going to be a struggle for the prosecution to explain to a jury why Colleen hadn't contacted police after her escape and about her trip to Riverside in 1981. They knew jurors would find it difficult to fathom how a grown woman could have spent years living in a box. Even though the hookers had burned a lot of the physical evidence implicating them, some items were still recovered from the property, including the waterbed and the box built underneath. Investigators disassembled the entire thing and moved it from the trailer to log into evidence at police headquarters. Colleen's original slave contract had been destroyed, but Hooker's insistence on documenting everything on film would be his undoing in this regard. He'd taken a photo of the signed contract but it had gone into the burn barrel. A celluloid slide made from the original photograph was found hidden in the pages of a book that Hooker had forgotten about. Janice was very upset upon learning that additional slides were also recovered that depicted her being hung from hooks, stretched on the rack, and bound in various ways. On December 20th, just after Hooker was arraigned on Colleen's kidnapping charges, a Chico newspaper reported a statement made by Red Bluff's chief of police. His detectives had been given a detailed confession regarding Cameron Hooker's involvement in the Marla Spanicky case by his wife, but they would not be taking any action in that matter at this time, he stated. Spanicky's case was separate from the kidnapping of Colleen Stan, and that was the case they were proceeding with at this time, he explained. But the information about Hooker's involvement in Marley Spanicky's disappearance caused Red Bluff residents to begin changing their perception of Cameron Hooker. Initially, Many locals refused to believe the allegations, defending Hooker to the press and to outsiders. Upon learning about the details of Marlis's murder from Hooker's wife, residents of Red Bluff began to suspect that they'd had a monster in their midst all along. If Hooker was found guilty on all charges, he was facing 115 years in prison. But Tehama County didn't have the financial resources to try him on every charge. 
So the DA, James Lang, was instructed to seek a plea deal to avoid bankrupting the county. In response, Roland Papendick made prosecutors an offer. Hooker would plead guilty to the kidnapping charge, abduction to live in an illicit relationship charge, and false imprisonment in return for the sex crime charges being dropped. They also wanted to stipulate that testimony about Marlis Spanicki's case be kept out of the trial. Hooker still planned on arguing that all the sex acts he had engaged in with Colleen were consensual and that he should be allowed to introduce evidence of Colleen's sexual history prior to her kidnapping. If the deal went ahead, Hooker would go to the county probation department for a sentence recommendation and likely receive just a few years in prison. The prospect that he could be out on parole in less than five years was very real. But just before the plea deal was due to go before Judge Murray, the assistant district attorney for the state of California stepped in. He announced that a plea negotiation based on lack of funds was inappropriate. If the county proceeded with this plea deal, the state would try the case, with the cost billed back to Tehama County. As this would be even more expensive, it was decided that Hooker would go to trial on all 16 felony charges. Roland Papendick's filing for a change of venue based on the adverse pretrial publicity was granted a month before the trial began. Proceedings would be held over 200 miles south of Red Bluff in Redwood City, the seat of San Mateo County in the San Francisco Bay Area. Jury selection began on September 24, 1985, under San Mateo Superior Court Judge Clarence Knight. The prosecution's strategy was to put both its star witnesses, Colleen Stan and Janice Hooker, on the stand. Others giving evidence against Hooker included his daughters, the Hooker's neighbors, Colleen's sister Bonnie Sue, Pastor Frank Dabney, and two expert witnesses, a physician and a psychologist. Christine McGuire, deputy DA for Tehama County, served as lead prosecutor. She initially rejected presenting the brainwashing theory to the jury. A jury had recently rejected this strategy as a defense in heiress Patty Hearst's kidnapping case. In 1974, Hearst was abducted by a far-left militant group and held for almost two years, during which time she had participated in a bank robbery with group members. She was arrested, tried, and found guilty of armed robbery and subsequently sentenced to seven years in prison. D.A. McGuire eventually decided that the jury's understanding of Colleen's mental state during her time in captivity was crucial to the case. The prosecution had interviewed psychologists who worked with hostages and cult survivors, experts who are knowledgeable about the psychological trauma of being in these types of situations. Together with these experts, McGuire learned all she could about post-traumatic stress disorder, Stockholm syndrome, involuntary conversion, and coercive control and crafted her case in a way jurors could understand. McGuire explained to the jury that Hooker used mind and behavioral control techniques, including isolation and terror, to control Colleen. The court heard that Colleen's failure to go to the police resulted from, quote, seven years of attachment conditioning. Like an infant utterly reliant on another person for survival, Colleen had been entirely dependent on Hooker when it came to even the most basic daily aspects of life, the prosecutor explained. The prosecution introduced over 100 pieces of physical evidence, including the head box, photographs of both Colleen and Janice in bondage, a copy of the slave contract, the waterbed pedestal and its concealed box underneath, and the rack on which Colleen was tortured. Jurors gasped at two enlarged photographs, allowing them to view them clearly. One was of Colleen nude and hanging by the wrists with the slave collar around her neck. Janice was the state's first witness. Stunned jurors listened as she explained that for the first five months of Colleen's imprisonment, she was locked in the box under the bed for 23 hours a day. The box was displayed in the courtroom so the jury could see how Colleen had been confined. Janice Hooker testified that her husband had instructed Colleen to sign the slave contract, threatening that if she did anything wrong, her family would also be killed. The court heard how Cameron Hooker had planned to kidnap more women stalking them and taking photos with a telephoto lens. Janice presented to the jury as someone controlled by and fearful of her husband, of being abandoned by him, 
but also of being physically harmed and humiliated. She also testified how Hooker used her and Colleen's faith against them after they began studying the Bible together. He drilled into them Bible passages that commanded slaves to be submissive to their masters and wives to their husbands as another way to justify his control over the women. Colleen took the stand next. She described the details of her kidnapping and time in captivity in a matter-of-fact, unemotional way. Some thought this odd and wondered if her story had been fabricated. But her flat emotional affect was later explained by the state psychologists as a result of the extreme trauma she'd suffered over a prolonged period. As Colleen described how Hooker attached the headbox on the day she was kidnapped, a female employee of the DA's office entered the courtroom. She'd volunteered to have it placed on her head to demonstrate to the jury how it worked. When Detective Shamblin snapped the headbox shut, jurors and those in the public gallery gasped as the woman staggered under its weight. Colleen gave graphic testimony of the torture sessions Hooker subjected her to. She detailed that between 1979 and 1980, while she was allowed out of the box to babysit the Hooker's children, she was kept in a back bathroom, chained to the toilet at night. Colleen also testified that Janice lied when she said Colleen wore makeup to appear attractive for Cameron, that she'd made him special meals, and, quote, hugged and kissed him. She said Janice was complicit in keeping her captive. Janice had watched her every move and told Colleen that if she tried running away, quote, you might as well put a gun to your head and shoot yourself, end quote. Colleen admitted telling Hooker she loved him in 1980, but explained that this was out of fear. Quote, because I felt that if I made him feel that I loved him, he would treat me better. Sometimes, she said, she felt a sort of love and thankfulness towards her captor, but she now couldn't understand why, because she knew he was a, quote, very terrible person. The jury also heard Colleen's account of the obedience test she had to perform before being permitted to visit her family in 1981. Cameron Hooker had forced her to put the barrel of a gun into her mouth and pulled the trigger. She explained to the jury why she didn't stay with her family after the visit, saying she was too terrified of what he would do, or the company would do, if she said anything to her family members. This pervasive fear also explained why Colleen was too scared to leave when she was given more freedom in Red Bluff. She denied what Janice had testified to on the stand, that she had given Colleen the opportunity to leave earlier. Janice testified that before Colleen went to Riverside in March of 1981, she told her she could leave. According to Janice, Colleen responded, quote, God doesn't want me to go yet. Colleen denied this ever happened, but testified that Cameron Hooker had repeatedly told her that it was God's plan for her to be there so he could, quote, straighten out her life. Colleen's younger sister, Bonnie Sue, testified about the 1981 visit to Riverside. She stated that during the phone call before the visit, Colleen's voice, quote, sounded shaky, and she wouldn't say where she was or give any other details. Bonnie Sue recalled that during the visit, the family met Hooker, but she saw no affection or words of endearment between her sister and the man who was introduced as her fiancé. Colleen hadn't even mentioned Hooker was her fiancé, until just minutes before he arrived to pick her up, Bonnie Sue said. She said she never believed they were a couple. The Hooker's daughters, who are now aged nine and seven, were next to testify. Taking the stand one at a time, they were shown a picture of the woman they'd known as Kay. The girl stated that at one point, they were told Kay had gone home, and they hadn't seen her again for a very long time. They also told the court about a locked bathroom that they were never allowed to enter. This was the bathroom where Colleen was locked at night. The couple's youngest daughter recalled her mother yelling at her when she and a cousin were exploring an area of the property they'd been forbidden to go. They saw a hole that appeared to lead to an underground room, she said. Colleen had been kept in the underground bunker briefly in 1983 until it had flooded. The girl described seeing a light on in the hole, but said she didn't see Kay. Dr. Michael J. Vovakes, a physician who examined Colleen four months after she fled Red Bluff, was the prosecution's first expert witness. He testified that among Colleen's many injuries 
for her pierced labia, scars on her left breast, both wrists, both ankles, and inner thighs near the groin, with one appearing to be a burn scar. Her hair was also very thin. Psychologist Dr. Christopher Hatcher was called to testify. Dr. Hatcher had been awarded grants to research hostage behavior. He had studied Jim Jones's People's Temple cult and its members, and had expertise in hypnosis, terrorism, victim behavior, violent behavior, mind control, and coercion. He'd worked with many law enforcement agencies, including the U.S. Department of Justice, Scotland Yard, the San Francisco Police Department, the Los Angeles Police Department, and the U.S. Secret Service. Dr. Hatcher spent hours interviewing both Colleen and Janice and studied reams of evidence in Colleen Stan's abduction. He explained to the jury the methods Hooker had used to break Colleen's will. He'd created an atmosphere of total dependency on him for her basic survival until Colleen felt she had no choice but to obey his every order. Hooker isolated, tortured, and abused her, took away her clothes, restricted her access to fresh air, daylight, bathing, and toileting facilities, controlled her food and water intake, and required her to ask permission for even basic functions. He threatened not just her life, but the lives of her loved ones should she disobey. He also described even worse torture and death that awaited her if she were to be sold by the company slave traders. Colleen was manipulated into believing that only by remaining a slave to Hooker would she survive. Dr. Hatcher testified that Colleen's imprisonment closely followed a series of techniques, quote, initially developed by the Soviets and Chinese to establish coercion to a degree in which a person essentially gives up their overt resistance and will do whatever they are asked to do, end quote. He explained how Colleen's kidnapping and imprisonment by Hooker closely followed this model of coercion. Following an unexpected abduction, captors enforce isolation as soon as possible in a cell-like environment while refusing to answer the victim's questions. Increasing their levels of fear, anxiety, and vulnerability is achieved by beginning humiliation and degradation via physical and or sexual abuse and torture, lack of privacy, and control of basic bodily functions. Sleep disruption by enforcing sensory deprivation via unpredictable and prolonged exposure to daylight and darkness disorients a victim and makes them feel even more disconnected from a typical human experience. Inflicting punishment for no apparent reason maintains a pattern of physical, sexual, and psychological abuse in a world where the captor is the only source of information or human interaction for the victim. Captors using this technique provide a model for the captive on how to please the captor. And like Cameron Hooker, captors minimize the need to constantly monitor their victims by communicating threats of violence or death to them and their loved ones if they dared disobey. Dr. Hatcher also explained that information about such techniques was available in bondage, discipline, and sadomasochism literature, which Hooker consumed. He described sadomasochism as, quote, more than just bondage and discipline. It's the giving and receiving of pain that is involved in generating sexual excitement, though typically these acts involve consenting adults, he explained. Hooker's behavior was atypical and on the extreme end of the scale. The doctor described Hooker as someone whose drive for sadomasochistic stimulation is, quote, so strong they will take an individual, imprison them, and sometimes kill them in the process of completing their various fantasies, end quote. Although the psychologist couldn't explain what caused Hooker to be driven to such violent sexual desires, he did describe how the need for these types of stimuli in the process of sexual gratification typically starts at puberty. A person who finds himself sexually gratified only by violent images or actions may have been exposed to images of people being tied up or tortured as their initial introduction to sexuality. While they might find this disturbing at first, it becomes their primary source of sexual arousal. But they also feel shame about this and keep it a secret. In an attempt to understand this sexual drive, they may delve further into publications with this type of imagery. BDSM magazines, etc. This reinforces the behavior, and they become even more driven to act upon it. In Hooker's home library, investigators found articles with titles like Captive Maid, Sex Slaves for Sale, and Actual Case Histories of Sexual Slavery. In terms of victims who are subjected to forced compliance with kidnappers, cult leaders, etc., 
Dr. Hatcher described how it affects their mental state and their inability to act or save themselves. He said it was, quote, not just that a person is pressured to do something or not do something, but their whole adult process, their values, their way of looking at the world is changed completely, end quote. When no one intervened to help Colleen, even when she was out in public and seemingly free, this further reinforced her belief that she would never be saved and there was no escape from her situation. She resigned herself to accept that this was her fate. This may also have been the reason that Colleen immersed herself in her faith. She believed that only God could save her now. If she had faith but was never saved, Colleen took solace that one day she would, quote, be with Jesus. Finally, Dr. Hatcher suggested it would take a person who had suffered the amount of trauma Colleen had some time after returning to normal life before they were able to confront or report their captor. To do so would force them to relive the experience all over again, something Colleen wanted to avoid at all costs. The DA described for the jury how Colleen Stan appeared entirely uninterested in Hooker's arrest, his plea, or details of the trial, but had told her that she, quote, just wanted to get on with her life. Dr. Hatcher concluded his testimony by saying that other than experiences of black slavery in America, or other cases that went back much further in history, Colleen's case was extremely unique, adding, quote, there would not be a similar situation in which this degree of captivity and sadomasochistic torture of a human being had existed in a previous case. To the surprise of the jury, Cameron Hooker took the stand in his own defense. As part of his defense strategy, he admitted to kidnapping Colleen, but claimed that once the family moved to the mobile home in April of 1978, she was free to go but chose to stay. Roland Papendick countered Janice's testimony by painting her as a scorned and jealous wife who lied to get back at her husband. The defense also claimed that Janice, not Cameron, insisted Colleen be put back in the box and remain locked away from 1981 to 1984. Hooker also admitted to keeping Colleen in a box and engaging in bondage with her. But he insisted Colleen had consented to these acts with him. He claimed he'd helped Colleen by, quote, getting her off drugs. He said that after she'd been taken to his home, within a day or so, she had become very sick, quote, with drugs and all that, end quote. He said he knew nothing about drugs but had held Colleen's hand and talked with her while she went through withdrawal. Hooker also claimed he had had no interest in having sex with Colleen. He said that she had just slept a lot for the first three months or so, adding that she was, quote, really down on her parents and family and had nowhere to go. He said that he and Janice had, quote, faced the fact that we were stuck with her for a long time. Over time, he said he and Colleen became very close. He claimed that she could have left several times, but she chose to stay because she loved him. To convince the jury of this, the defense presented witnesses who had seen Colleen doing yard work, jogging, and riding a bike near the property. Colleen's former King's Lodge Motel co-workers testified that she came and went of her own accord. Roland Papendick introduced into evidence testimony about Colleen and Janice's night out in 1980 when they went to a bar and met men. The defense also presented evidence of phone calls between Colleen and Hooker after she was free. When it came to addressing the trip to Riverside in 1981, Hooker explained that Colleen was alone with her family, but was never kept against her will, and returned voluntarily to Red Bluff with him. The defense presented a photograph taken of Colleen and Cameron Hooker at her parents' house in Riverside, which was described in the last episode. If you'll recall, in the picture, they look like a happy couple with Colleen's arms draped around Hooker's shoulders. Colleen testified that she'd posed like this for the picture to comply with Hooker's order that she pretend they were a young couple in love. He acknowledged lying to Colleen about the company, but said that a few months before they moved to the mobile home, he'd ended that ruse by telling her he'd bought her out of her contract. He also said it was Janice's idea, not his, to get Colleen to sign a slave contract. However, when cross-examined by the prosecution, 
He admitted that Colleen hadn't learned he lied about the company until August 1984, when Janice finally revealed this secret. It was Hooker's claim that Janice was jealous and wanted Colleen to leave, but he kept putting it off because he had, quote, fallen in love with her very deeply. He even went so far as to allege it was Janice who had used electrical wires to shock and burn Colleen, saying, I just stayed out of it. He said that Colleen took care of the children day and night, while Janice went out drinking, partied with other men, and sometimes stayed out all night. The woman he'd kidnapped by force wanted to stay, he said. He claimed that he and Colleen had discussed marriage and hoped Janice would find someone else and leave. When asked by the prosecution about the slave collar he'd made Colleen wear around her neck, he claimed it was a sort of wedding band. If it was Hooker's strategy to appear to the jury as a sympathetic character, a hen-pecked husband who'd fall in love with his kidnapped victim, which is just bizarre, he instead came across as smug, cocky, creepy, and delusional. Other key witnesses for the defense included members of the Hooker's family. The court heard how the woman they knew as Kay the babysitter had accompanied him, Janice, and their daughters on a family trip to Bernie Falls in 1984. There were photos of all of them together, smiling. Colleen had also taken a trip to the lake with the family, including Hooker's brother and his wife, in 1980, where she'd learned to water ski. When she was cross-examined, Colleen admitted she told Hooker in 1980 that she loved him after he let her out of the box and began treating her a bit less harshly. When the defense presented letters in Colleen's handwriting, they claimed professed her love. She responded that she'd always written poems, but these weren't, in truth, her feelings for her captor. However, she said she didn't correct him when he believed they were. During cross-examination, Colleen stated that Hooker had told her to write about her love and affection for him. Sometimes, she just used the words that he repeated to her over and over. Some of these statements she'd put down on paper at his direction, including her feelings of passion for him, that her love for him was growing, her desire to be his wife, and her hope that one day she would have his baby. The defense called their expert witness, psychiatrist Dr. Donald T. Lund, to the stand. He also addressed the question of coercion and whether Colleen was a victim of mind control or brainwashing. It was Dr. Lund's opinion that Colleen was not coerced because she wasn't in physical captivity for the entire seven-year period. In his view, constant captivity was an essential requirement of coercion. Dr. Lund also testified it wasn't reasonable for Colleen to believe in the existence of an underground slave network such as the company. He said that a 20-year-old educated woman would understand she could have called police or other authorities if she needed help or protection. He instead suggested that Colleen had remained with Hooker because she had fallen in love with him. The defense cited the letters Colleen had written to Hooker, as well as telephone records establishing the calls she made to him after leaving Red Bluff. Even though Dr. Lund's specialty was psychiatry, he also provided an opinion regarding medical issues. He testified that hanging a person by their wrists for over 20 minutes would cut off their circulation and cause permanent damage to their limbs and cardiovascular system. The implication of his statement was that this treatment hadn't been inflicted on Colleen at all, given that she still had the use of her arms and no subsequent cardiovascular issues. Dr. Lund also disputed the claim that Colleen had been kept in a box for 23 hours a day for three years, stating that if this were true, he'd expect to see serious musculoskeletal damage. At one point in his testimony, the doctor referred to attention drills that Hooker had forced Colleen to perform at a moment's notice. He likened these to similar drills required of Marine Corps recruits. However, Judge Knight questioned this rationale, asking Dr. Lund if he equated Colleen's treatment with Marine Corps training. The defense would later use the judge's question in Hooker's appeal, claiming that it showed the judge's bias against the defense by discrediting their expert witness and attempting to make him look, quote, ridiculous. Just five and a half weeks after the trial began and after three days of deliberation, on October 31, 1985, the jury found Cameron Hooker guilty of 10 felony counts, including kidnapping, oral copulation, rape with a foreign object, sodomy, and six counts of rape. The only remaining charge, the seventh count of rape, resulted in a hung jury, and this count was dismissed. Colleen wasn't in court for the verdict, but when lead prosecutor Christine McGuire called her with the news, 
She was overwhelmed with relief, responding, Praise the Lord, justice is done. Following the verdict, jurors said what convinced them of Hooker's guilt on almost every count was Dr. Hatcher's testimony. His compelling expert testimony helped the jury understand Colleen's state of mind and her inability to break free of Hooker's control. The jury believed Colleen's expressed love for her captor was, quote, a different kind of love, like an abused child, seeking attention and affection after being abused, end quote. They also found Colleen's testimony convincing due to her demeanor, her deadness, her stillness, as one juror described it. Three days after the conviction, Hooker called Colleen from the San Mateo County Jail, telling her, quote, I just wanted a call so that you can chew my butt out or say whatever you want to me. Colleen responded, I have nothing to say to you, before hanging up. D.A. McGuire quickly contacted the county jail to ensure Hooker could no longer reach out to Colleen. Almost a month later, on November 22, 1985, Judge Knight sentenced 32-year-old Cameron Hooker to a maximum of 104 years in prison. The sentences for the sex offenses would run consecutively, totaling 60 years, with an indeterminate sentence of 1 to 25 years for the kidnapping and a 5 to 10 year sentence for the use of a knife. In his sentencing remarks, Judge Knight described Hooker as, quote, the most dangerous psychopath I have ever dealt with, who will be a danger to women as long as he is alive, end quote. On November 26, Hooker was transferred to the California Medical Facility at Vacaville for evaluation. Infamous serial killer Edmund Kemper has been incarcerated at Vacaville since 1973. Hooker was later transferred to Folsom Prison. His attorney immediately appealed Hooker's sentence. The California Court of Appeal denied it in March of 1988. Twenty-six years later, in October 2014, 60-year-old Cameron Hooker became eligible for parole. On April 16th of the following year, he appeared before the California Department of Corrections Parole Board for a suitability hearing under the state's elderly parole program. He was denied parole, and the board ruled Hooker ineligible for another hearing for 15 years. On December 7, 2018, Hooker, now 65 years old, filed a petition to advance his next parole suitability hearing date, and again, the parole board denied his request. But in 2020, due to the state's efforts to lower inmate populations due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Hooker was deemed eligible for an advanced hearing date. Tehama County DA Matthew Rogers explained the decision, saying that changes to California's sentencing laws meant Hooker's sentence was reduced based on factors including changes to credit calculations. Despite this change, D.A. Rogers stated since then, he and other law enforcement officials have made concerted efforts to stop Hooker from being eligible for eventual release. However, the D.A. followed this up with another announcement saying, quote, A judge heard the evidence from the state doctors and determined that there is probable cause to believe that Hooker does meet the definition of a sexually violent predator. This determination means Hooker will now go to trial which could either be a bench or a jury trial. When Colleen Stan heard the news of the upcoming trial, she said, quote, We hear stories of people that have been let out early all the time that then go out and reoffend. I think it's an atrocity that they are not doing anything to try to protect us anymore, and they're just letting these people out, end quote. Prisoners who are classified as sexually violent predators in California are treated differently. If Hooker does receive this classification, he will not be paroled, but instead will be confined to a state mental hospital. He would be eligible for release only if officials determine that he has been rehabilitated. This process could take 10 to 20 years, and as of this writing, Cameron Hooker is already 70 years old. I have first-hand knowledge of how rare it is for the California Department of Corrections Parole Board to grant parole to offenders who have committed serious felonies and have been sentenced to long periods of incarceration. The board is very cautious about releasing offenders who have committed high-profile crimes such as this one. I'd venture to guess it is improbable that Cameron Hooker will ever be released from prison, although it's not impossible. Colleen Stan expressed gratitude to Red Bluff Police Chief Kyle Sanders 
and DA Rogers for their help in pursuing the case to push for Hooker to be classified as a sexually violent predator. She also expressed her gratitude to One Safe Place and Empower Tehama, two groups that help assault survivors. Cameron Hooker's trial is set to begin this year on March 9, 2024. Following Colleen Stan's escape, she remained close to her family and continued living in Riverside. She later received about $20,000 from California's Victims Assistance Program to help restart her life. After filing a civil suit against Hooker, she was awarded $150,000 by his homeowner's insurance company. Colleen eventually returned to school and earned an accounting degree. In 1987, at the age of 30, she gave birth to a daughter. She's been married, divorced, and is now a grandmother. However, the seven years she spent in captivity took a significant toll on both her physical and mental health. Today, at 67 years old, Colleen still attends church regularly and studies her Bible. But she continues to live with dental problems and chronic back issues and can't sit up for long without support. For a long time, she feared going out alone and crowds. She has been diagnosed with PTSD and tends to overeat after so many years of having just one meal a day. Despite the lifelong trauma she has to deal with daily, Colleen now counsels other women who have experienced abuse. Janice Hooker, who now goes by her maiden name, filed from divorce from her husband in January 1986 and raised her daughters in the Northern California area. She went back to school and became a licensed social worker in 1998. She has been employed with various state and private organizations in Northern California. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Make sure to follow or subscribe to Once Upon a Crime on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Mark your calendars for Thursday, February 22nd to attend our True Crime Listener Meetup in San Jose, California. I'll be co-hosting this fun, informal event with the boys from Kansas City, Justin and Aaron from the Generation Y podcast. Spend an evening with us hanging out and talking true crime. Tickets aren't required and everyone is invited. Bring your best partners in crime. Get more information by clicking on the link in the show notes or go to truecrimepodcast.com and click on Upcoming Events. You can also find all our social media links on our website. Once again, that's truecrimepodcast.com. Once Upon a Crime is produced and edited by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My production and administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia. Research for this episode was provided by Emma Battaglia and was co-written by Gemma Harris. Until next time, be good to one another.